Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Cruz Medina. We talk about multimodal composition, digital writing and multicultural rhetoric, social justice and social media, and integrating technology in the writing classroom. Cruz Medina is assistant professor of rhetoric and composition at Santa Clara University, where he teaches courses on writing and Latinx rhetoric. He is the 2018 through 2020 co-chair of the NCTE Four Seas Latinx Caucus and has taught courses for the Breadloaf School of English since 2016. He co-edited a digital collection called Racial Shorthand, Coded Discrimination Contested in Social Media. Cruz, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with a pedagogical definition given your research and teaching interest in technologies and digital writing. So how about we start with a simple definition of multimodal composition. I think my definition of multimodal composition is pretty pretty standard just in terms of the, the, the different modalities we hear from like Rolla and Shepard, you know, sort of the visual, aural, gestural, facial, and linguistic. And I think that might even come from like the New London group. So I think it's very, very, I sort of, you know, feel like those kind of work really well. I'm also a big fan of Jody Shipka though too, and I know she likes to kind of throw in sort of thinking about taste and even sort of uh, smell, things like that, which are very, I think highlight how, you know, multimodality, as much as we think about it, things like video and podcasts or websites, you know, it still connects with things that are not digital as well. So I think that's a good reminder too, and thinking about how we're using all these uh, different modes of communication that aren't always digital. However, I think in the digital, um, we tend to bring them together really well. And I think for the purposes going back to like, you know, what Kathleen Blake Yancey said like 15 years ago, this is a really good to think about in terms of teaching for preparing students for that 21st century skills that they're going to need to use. So you're teaching intersex digital writing and multicultural rhetoric, and you focus on issues of social justice, race, and literacy. Can you talk about that connection and how digital writing and multicultural rhetoric come together in your classroom? Sure. So I think the connection between digital writing and multicultural rhetoric for me almost goes back to sort of James Berlin and thinking about the idea of the social epistemic and thinking always how when we're writing, we're never really disconnected from sort of the cultural influences of or the knowledge in a specific geographic space that we're writing in. So I think, you know, even when we're composing in these you know, digital spaces, um, they're still really informed by these, you know, this cultural knowledge or traditions that are happening. So, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's used a blog for more than 10 years. What I found was, you know, there was some uh, certain, you know, I would say, tra- uh, yeah, I guess traditions, because it was, it was Natalie Martinez's video that she created that really inspired me with for the idea of the digital testimonial. And I could kind of see that tradition that she was borrowing from. And so, I think as much as, you know, we want to say there's a certain neutrality for some of these digital platforms, you know, we can definitely see that, you know, what we're, how we're using them is definitely informed by rhetorical traditions that we come from or that we value. I've really been 
pushing for students to think a lot more about bringing in their own images or video or things that they're creating. And so, I, you know, there's, a, I think, a very tangible way for them to kind of be thinking about these multimodal projects. But in the same course, when we're thinking about storytelling, I'll have them read the introduction of the uh, storytelling survivance. And I'm messing up that title. So three S's, and it's edited, I think, put together by a lot of folks in the American Latina or the American Indian caucus in that, you know, the ideas that they sort of bring up is a question of uh, rhetorical sovereignty. And so they say, you know, you can't really think about a lot of this storytelling or you can't think a lot about, you know, what it means to look at a sort of American Indian sort of writing without thinking about this notion of sovereignty. So I think, you know, I have them, you know, read something like that. And then I pair that up with uh, Tommy Orange is there, there, just a selection from that. So, you know, that's very much more literature based, but I think it's a nice way of them to be looking at some writing where, you know, this idea of sort of rhetorical sovereignty is something that the authors are saying is very foundational to thinking about, you know, American Indian representation and sort of, you know, applying that and thinking that through negotiating that. So as much as, you know, we can definitely talk about it in that way, that multicultural, <laughs> that aspect of the rhetoric happening there. It's it's not always something I necessarily, you know, put on them to say like, okay, we need to make sure and we see, you know, how, how you're applying this per se to your own projects. Although, you know, what my my own hope, my own personal hope is that, you know, by you know, giving them these very tangible ways of thinking about it when they do then approach their own projects, you know, they are still thinking about it maybe on a more personal or cultural or community level. I don't know, adding that layer of understanding that I think that they might not have come into the class with before. So it's a lot to always say, like, how are we going to teach multicultural rhetoric? Because you're, you're, you're including a lot of different traditions in that. I think if they can come away with at least sort of a few bits of those kinds of ways of approaching, you know, their critical thinking and writing, that's, that's, that's all I can kind of hope for. So you're talking about digital storytelling, and I think that helps us see the type of work you're doing in the writing classroom. And this is something you explore in your writing and research too. You focus on digital storytelling and using multimodal practices and methodologies to center classes on social justice issues. In Digital Latinx Storytelling, you write, quote, the genre of digital testimonio is undergirded by the centrality of experiential knowledge and Lat-Crit scholarship that challenges the dominant narratives normalizing and dismissing the systemic oppression of people and communities of color. And then you go on to say this, quote, the integration of digital testimonio into writing courses would benefit diverse student populations because the ability to write for a public audience works against the experience of feeling silenced as a so-called imposter, an affirmative action beneficiary, or a scholarship student who does not belong, end quote. How do you invite students to talk about their racialized experiences in the writing classroom? And what have you discovered to be the advantages of doing this via digital multimodal composing as opposed to the traditional alphabetic text? I mean, I think a lot of the, uh, my, my interest in testimonials still came from sort of alphabetic that I'd seen, you know, but I think as a, I mentioned, mentioned that chapter, uh, I Rigoberto Menchu, which is sort of, you know, and having written down what someone said, orally. So I think genre where it sort of has that ethos of sort of speaking the truth of power there. And so I think, you know, it, it does the individual perspective, thinking about this collective experience. 
And I think, you know, when we think about issues of race and ethnicity and sort of any other kind of, you know, marginalization students may or may not have experienced, I think, you know, when they see these examples of other students, you know, talking about this um, in their own videos, I think they're able to see some of that collective experience that they themselves may, might not have thought about or sort of recognize. So, you know, sort of in order, in, when we analyze before we start to compose our own texts, you know, I think it's a nice moment where, you know, students can say like, oh, I did have that experience. I was thinking about something kind of like that. So they do feel it does give them a little bit more, I think, authority, uh, or they feel like a little bit more authority to say, okay, I can talk about this because this is something that other folks have paid attention to. And I think, you know, they still tend to have a lot of that individual experience where they say, oh, you know, mine's still a little bit different because of this reason. I think that's what's really important or really nice too, because, you know, we're always talking about you know, and writing things like voice and sort of, you know, this uniqueness of voice. So I think there's an element of that that gets carried over when we're asking students, of course, to be recording their own voices as part of that um, practice. But I think, you know, when you're asking students then to you know, sort of bring in their own, their own images, um, then I think at the same time, you know, it really makes sort of their experiences that much more present, I think, for themselves when they're writing about, but then also for the audiences. And I know that sort of that moment of like, including the their own sort of archival family footage, you know, or whatever, you know, just images they have from being kids, you know, I think it's always kind of like this moment where they're sort of vulnerable and feeling, oh man, am I really gonna share this? And then when they do, it's like, watching them together in the class, that's when they're like, oh man, like, you know, people really, I think, appreciate that. So do you explicitly link this digital testimonial assignment to social justice? Well, I'm, re- I'm really fortunate that at my school, where <laughs> since we are a Jesuit institution, like social justice is, is a part of the mission statement. So it literally is something that I think when, I, when, I, when we start talking about, you know, experience as being something that comes up or you know the the questions that we're asking being informed by our own experience or thinking about things like that i think you know it's it, it's not sort of out of place to kind of thinking about things like consciousness you, you know it doesn't tend to sound like i'm sort of speaking from sort of out of left field so i'm, I'm really fortunate in a lot of ways that it's sort of framed in that way when i'm asking students to do like the digital testimonial project you know they're they're like i i had you know a white male student from the midwest but the cool question i remember he kind of came up with was sort of like you know what are these stereotypes about the midwest that of course you know he as someone living now in the you know west coast in california probably is much more aware of now that he's sort of in this space where it's kind of like oh like i didn't I recognize because living there, I wouldn't assume that, you know, people in this progressive place might still maintain uh, some of these, some of these assumptions. So I think, you know, it's, it's really nice that, you know, even someone who might, might consider more of a privileged space or, you know, position, you know, still has that opportunity to kind of like speak about that and talk through that, which ideally hopefully makes them much more receptive to the other people when they're talking about these, you know, these other issues that we might see or understand or be much more familiar with. In Racial Shorthand, you write about the importance of examining online spaces and media because, quote, racist discourse about and threats against non-whites continue to circulate in social media due to the fact that users believe they are hidden or hooded by cyber anonymity, end quote. Social media can be problematic because it can be a space that reproduces white supremacy and racism. Social media can also be a space that helps 
provide opportunities for communities of color to share stories, circulate information, and connect for social justice purposes. Can you talk about this complex relationship between social media and social justice? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think in, in the collection, I think Miriam Williams, I think she does the, the, the best job in sort of thinking about the use of the hashtag uh, Black Lives Matter and sort of how that created its own sort of platform or connective space that once folks were using the hashtag, they were able to sort of connect. And I think even going back to sort of the mind space I was probably in sort of working on that some years ago, it's like, I think there was a lot of hope in terms of thinking about how a lot of these social media platforms felt maybe a little more neutral or sort of felt just like these writing tools and i think it kind of went with that same hope at the time when you know i feel like yancey and then maybe uh andrew lunsford sort of saying in writing matters you know that like we're writing more and writing all these different places and students are texting and this is great and i think you know in that sort of part of that message is like no this is good you know we can leverage these you know these platforms in a way that you know they can really be just like any other kind of writing in their own sort of how we're deciding to use them. So I think that's kind of the, maybe the double-edged sword a little bit, but I think, you know, what was really encouraging was, yes, you know, they provided these, these spaces for writing and reflection, critical thinking, and then of course, action. When you're, when you're thinking about it, I think a lot of people who might be isolated or feel isolated, you know, activists in terms of, you know, rights for different groups, and then they don't feel like they're around those groups in different places. I think, you know, social media gives them that opportunity, I think, to connect uh, with others so that, you know, they're not feeling necessarily just get, or they can, they can see maybe when they're gaslighted in their own, their own communities in terms of, you know, telling people that these are issues and other people just kind of dismissing them away. All that's to say that I think, you know, then a couple of years ago when uh, Sophia Noble's uh, Algorithms of Oppression, I think when that came out, she sort of, you know, drew attention to a lot less of the, uh, the, the neutrality in sort of these online spaces sort of raising the question of like, you know, why is it that we're getting these certain, you know, kind of results and, and uh, I think that really sort of raised the question that, of course, you know, as we went through the election in 2016, you know, we started to see the influence of things like bots and, you know, realizing that, you know, that these, these spaces weren't as maybe neutral or protected or altruistic or democratic <laughs> that we thought and that, you know, how these you know, certain algorithms rank and, you know, promote certain kinds of, of uh, tweets or videos on YouTube that, you know, can very much work against, I think, so uh, social justice practices by, you know, spreading misinformation and sort of, you know, continuing the wrong dominant narratives. <laughs> so it's, you know, I think as much as I, I want to still be excited about and I still use social media, you know, we're, we're still we've become a lot more critical in the way that I think, which is probably good so that we're not going into it naively. And I think, although, and I have to say that I think a lot of my students who I see now using things like Instagram, I'm really uh, inspired by just how, you know, they are using it for their own, you know, trying to get people together or spreading information about, you know, certain causes that are happening. So I think, it's one of those some those things is like a four year old person. I'm like, oh, this is what I hope people are using it for. You know, it's like I get really excited when I do have students where I'm like, wow, they're going beyond what I think that I I myself use it for. And if I compare what they're doing to my own tweets, I'm like, wow, I'm just 
just this milk toast, you know, professor person in the, in the, in the ivory, in the ivory tower. So, you know, so I, I definitely think it is, continues to be, you know, there are spaces for hope. How do you talk about ethics and ethical principles as you integrate technology in the writing classroom? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think the, the thing we always tend to think about the most when we talk about technology, of course, is always access, right? You know, that's sort of the been a question for a while, <laughs> sort of saying like, you know, we have focused a lot on the digital divide and, you know, we, but we also want to pay attention to other ways that you know, people of color are using or have used technology. So I think, you know, access still remains an issue, of course, because like we're saying all institutions are different, all sort of content writing, writing uh, contexts are very different. So of course you want to kind of address the, the access issue. So I think, you know, for myself, I know I never ask students to necessarily buy any new software or have anything that, that, that they would have to spend more money on because I do work with a lot of first generation college students. So even though I'm at a very, you know, uh, affluent, you know, Jesuit university, it's, you know, I still like, you know, ask them to do things they either can do from their own laptop or have access to in the university's library. So I think those kinds of, you know, access issues are important because then also over the summer, I'll teach courses with the, the Breadloaf School of English in Santa Fe. I've done that the last few summers. And when I do that, I also have students create projects. And so it's been really good because I think a lot of those teachers tend to, or a lot of those students tend to be K through 12 teachers. And so a lot of them aren't thinking about technology. So, you know, they might not have the most updated laptops. So we've been able to find, you know, certain online tools like Wii Video and things like that. So even if they don't have a Mac and they can still edit online, so they're not sort of restrained by uh, software, hardware issues. But beyond that, one of the big things I know that's been more on my mind is sort of the question, of course, sort of intellectual property. I think that's, we've been talking about it more that way. Uh, but me, you know, but the way we've always been talking about it is the question of just citation and attribution. And so I think, you know, something that I've, I've definitely encouraged students a lot more is sort of saying, you know, can we avoid using third party you know, images. I mean, if we do, of course, you know, we want to put sort of cite them in sort of the same way we do it in text and sort of a work cited, you know, having some kind of attribution of the, the photographer name or where we're getting it from on the actual image. But then also pushing, that's, I think, another motivation though when I ask students like, hey, let's use your own images. If like, like, let's go out there and take pictures, go take video. And I think that's, so that's also something that overlaps a little bit then when I'm asking them to, to do interviews with people, which I will do with some uh, research projects. And so I say, you know, as a part of that, we're making sure we're getting the consent for the people when we're either, you know, recording their audio or recording video. And that's something, you know, you could talk to them about, see what they're most comfortable with. So I think, you know, it certainly brings up that question. We don't like to talk about the terms like plagiarism. I think it's good to, you know, sort of bring that up in terms of like, you know, this is still a concern where if we're using, you know, all these images that we're just finding on Google, you know, like how does that not compare it if we just copied and pasted a bunch of stuff we found on Google. So I think sort of contextualizing it sort of shows how it still sort of parallels that traditional writing process, I think, reinforces the fact that, hey, we're not just kind of doing this, you know, fun technology thing that really isn't kind of rooted in practices that we've already been doing and, and values that we already kind of have in writing. Thanks, Cruz. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.